mainstream media outlets are far too reliant upon and trusting of the security state agencies that exist in order to deceive and manipulate the public and to disseminate propaganda and lies. Welcome to the interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. My guest this week is journalist and political commentator Glenn Greenwald. After earning a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting on the Edward Snowden NSA leak, Glenn founded the investigative news site The Intercept. He left The Intercept last year to go independent, with a popular newsletter on Substack, which focuses much of its attention on media criticism. I called up Glenn this week at his house in Brazil. We discussed the political climate in Brazil, the Trump and Biden administrations, his criticism of mainstream media, and why he appears on Tucker Carlson's Fox News show. Glenn, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, it's great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Of course. So for our listeners who don't know, you are based in Rio with your husband, David Miranda, who is a member of Congress in Brazil, and two kids. How are things going down there? I know it's been a turbulent year with, with COVID and Bolsonaro. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I've you know tried arguing for a long time that the uh, kind of equation that the Western press tried to draw between Bolsonaro and Trump was misleading and reductive and simplistic in a lot of ways, and I still think so, but there are also some similarities, in particular, the fact that Bolsonaro was just such a radical aberration, at least comportmentally and culturally, from what Brazilians have come to expect in their president, that he kind of just sucks up every last iota of oxygen when it comes to political discussions. Everything is either about praising Bolsonaro or attacking Bolsonaro, which is purely binary with very little in between, just like it was during the four years for Trump. And that does make for a very turbulent political climate and, and sometimes a, a kind of counterproductive one because not everything important fits within that binary. Um, and yet whatever doesn't seems to be unrecognized or, or ignored. So that creates a lot of chaos. You add on to that what is a clearly radically mismanaged COVID pandemic. And just the other general inherent problems in Brazil that have made that mismanagement so much worse in terms of inequality, that systemic corruption that have you know been around forever. And yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a difficult time politically for Brazil. You know, one of the, I think, the differences you're getting at between Bolsonaro and Trump is that the threat that Bolsonaro poses, at least to journalism, is extreme. And you know, I think while, while you're currently known for, uh, in the States for your work on Substack, you also have done some incredible reporting on corruption in Brazil. Uh, you just published a book about it, uh, Securing Democracy. And you faced some, some pretty nasty opposition from Bolsonaro's government and from supporters as a result of your reporting. Do you feel threatened by that administration? What, what's the situation there? I mean, I did. You know, it mm -hmm. wasn't just a lot of nasty words and threats, which there was actually a, a up, prosecution yeah, that, that was threatened. Yeah, yeah. I was actually indicted on, <laughs> you know, like 126 felony counts that would have sent me to prison for 300 and however many years had I been convicted on them. Um, what had happened was that in the middle of the reporting, Bolsonaro was explicitly threatening me in press conferences and interviews, saying I was likely to be imprisoned. There was a uh, his the the main target of uh, the reporting was was the justice minister Sergio Moro, who was an integral part of the Bolsonaro government, who had issued an order seemingly out of the blue, arrogating unto himself the power to summarily uh, deport any 
non-Brazilian citizens, any foreigners in Brazil who he deemed in his unilateral judgment to be a threat to national security. And it wasn't a huge mystery who he meant. So every time Bolsonaro was asked about that, Bolsonaro would say, no, I don't think one has to worry about being deported. I actually think his bigger worry is that he'll be able to stay in Brazil, but in a prison. And so it was in response to that, that the Brazilian Supreme Court issued an order in advance saying, uh, the government is barred from trying to investigate me criminally or prosecute me in connection with the reporting, given the constitutional right of a free press. And it was that ruling by the Supreme Court and only that ruling that caused the right wing judge who got my case to throw out the indictment, though he said he wishes he didn't have to, that he believes there were crimes committed by me um, and wouldn't have thrown it out absent that ruling. And, and the government has actually appealed the dismissal of that indictment against me. So theoretically, the charges are still pending, but I think it's very unlikely at this point, given how exonerated Lula has become as a result of our reporting, the Supreme Court ruled that his convictions were unjust because of the corruption that we exposed. But technically, the charges are still pending. But I did feel, you know, I think for a full year, I was the number one public enemy along with my husband of the Bolsonaro movement. And that has definitely subsided as the reporting has ended and they've moved on to other enemies. I think, I mean, that's a, the testament to Brazil's institutions, right? That you were not sort of politically persecuted to the extent of being sent to jail on these charges. Yeah, well, the, for me, you know, when I was, when Bolsonaro was running and then when he got elected, one of my arguments about why it was kind of reckless journalistically to equate them was because the countries are just so different. Even if you assume Trump and Bolsonaro are the same, the, the US democracy is 235 years old. So over those generations, people have been, been inculcated with democratic values. Those institutions have been fortified to resist any possible incursions into real threats to the status quo, as we saw during the Trump presidency, when the intelligence community, when the media, when Congress, when the citizenry, when so many institutions, financial institutions, united essentially to first impede him from doing anything truly disruptive and then ultimately defeating him. And it was always a big question for me and everybody else, whether Brazilian institutions, democratic institutions, which are not 235 years old, but only 35 years old, Brazil just had a military dictatorship until 1985. So half the population lived through it. Bolsonaro was a, a captain in that military dictatorship, always praised it as a superior form of government. The question always was, Will Brazilian institutions be capable of resisting attacks on core liberties or and will they even want to? And I think the question has been answered more in the affirmative than a lot of people expected. But at the time we started our reporting, we had no way of knowing it was four months after his inauguration. But I think there are big differences between the two leaders as well. Bolsonaro is much more of kind of a fixed, committed ideologue. He has a lot mm -hmm. of strong convictions that he's defended and articulated during 30 years as a kind of far right member of Congress. Whereas, you know, Trump is a game show host and a charlatan, a real estate uh, salesman who has a couple of kind of, you know, isolated political views that have been consistent over the years. But, you know, I think ultimately the idea that Trump was going to be some leader of a fascist takeover was ridiculous for a lot of reasons to actually follow through on any of those kind of commitments. Now, this is, as far as we know, not not related to um, any sort of political persecution, but you recently revealed on your Substack that you were robbed at gunpoint in this terrifying home invasion. Could you tell us a little bit of what, what happened there? Sure. So... Brazil has always been a country plagued by extraordinarily high levels of crime. 
even before the COVID pandemic in 2018 and 2019, the chances that if you were a Rio de Janeiro city police officer, you would be killed was is higher than the chances that a US soldier occupying Iraq at the height of the conflict in 2005, 2006 would be killed. So there's war zone levels of, of violence. It has obviously been severely exacerbated by the COVID pandemic that has caused already, you know, people who by the millions who are barely hanging on to lose whatever sustenance they had that has caused them to resort to crime. You know, and, and we have been targeted with a lot of very specific threats about our family as a result of the work that we had to take very seriously. I've always had armed security for the last year and a half when I left the house. So I was, we were staying at a farm um, kind of just to escape the misery of the pandemic in the city. And it was the day before my birthday. My kids were scheduled to come with my husband, but they were in Rio because David was, was working and they were going to come that night. And fortunately, at the last minute, they said they were going to come instead in the morning for my birthday. Huh. And around 930 at night, I heard my dogs barking incessantly. I went out to see what was going on because they don't usually do that. And as soon as I went outside, um, there were three men wearing masks, not like wow. generous COVID masks, but like <laughs> scary horror film black masks yeah. covering their faces. The bad ones. <laughs> yeah, the bad, the, the masks you don't want to see pointing guns at me. And then they ordered me into this room where I saw that two more armed men had already detained the security person and off-duty cop that, that was with me that night. And they kept us hostage for about an hour. I was very relieved that it was clear from the start that their motive was, you know, just to steal as opposed to some targeted political assassination. Mm. Um, yeah, but it was very, very harrowing uh, as yeah. an experience. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine that that must have been relieving. Um, and uh, I... I do want to talk about some some media criticism because obviously this is the Mediaite podcast. You are obviously well known. I don't known. do media criticism, so um, <laughs> I will try for the sake of the show. Yeah, you'll give it a shot. To, well, yeah, I'll try. I'll give it a shot just to try something new. Well, I was, yeah, I was going to say you're you're well known in the states for your reporting on national security, surveillance, foreign policy, and of course the the NSA documents leaked by uh, Edward Snowden, which you won a Pulitzer Prize for. But much of your current writing focuses on media criticism. What do you see as the biggest problem or problems with the American media today? Well, so I would say one of them is, is kind of a longstanding problem that I observed when I first started writing about politics in 2005. And then the other major one is one that I think is a unique byproduct of the Trump era. So when I set out to write about politics, you know, I was still working as a lawyer. I had no journalist training. I created a blog one day and my objective was to draw attention to assaults on civil liberties in the name of the war on terror that I believed was receiving insufficient attention in the broader media, given the magnitude of how much danger uh, I thought they posed. And I realized early on that there really was no way to make an impact in writing about any kind of an issue that you feel like you're writing from a kind of outsider perspective or trying to introduce and emphasize facts that the media is ignoring without also engaging in media criticism because so much of what you're battling against is, is propaganda, things that are being said that are false or obvious story about these matters that come from these media outlets. So if you don't engage the, that propaganda, it's impossible to make headway because you'll say something and people will say, well, I just read in the New York Times the opposite. So I learned early on that media criticism had to be a part of anything that you do. 
um, if you want to cut against the prevailing narrative. So I've been doing it forever. And my critique of the time, which I still think is true, was that in general, mainstream media outlets are far too reliant upon and trusting of the security state agencies that exist in order to deceive and manipulate the public and to disseminate propaganda and lies. And this has been going on, you know, well before the war on terror. There's lots of examples during the Cold War where the U.S. media, the corporate media, would just do the work of the CIA in calling coups that they had engineered, victories for democracy, things of that nature. But it got much worse after the 9-11 attacks. Obviously, liberal outlets like the New York Times played a leading role in selling the falsehoods of the Iraq war to American liberals, which is what created the bipartisan support in, in support of that war. And, you know, it just kind of continued throughout the whole war on terror. And I felt like there was this inextricable relationship that was very deferential and subservient between the media on the one hand and the security state agencies on the other. That was a major topic of critique of mine early on and continues to be. I think it drove Russiagate. It drives a lot of the media falsehoods now that the they're so susceptible to being, you know, kind of puppeteered by, by these agencies that are very adept at disseminating disinformation. So that's one primary focus of my media criticism that I think far predates Trump. I think, though, there's a unique one, which is what happened in the Trump years is that Trump, like Bolsonaro, was such a shock to the system because, again, he was so comportamentally different, even though he wasn't really that different on a policy or substantive level from his predecessors. And also, he did pose a threat to a lot of ruling power institutions, ruling, you know, elite institutions. He would just openly denounce the CIA as being liars. He talked constantly about the deep state. He would, instead of heralding American exceptionalism, when asked about Putin's killing of journalists, he would say, you don't think we do that as well? All the things American presidents aren't supposed to do. And a lot of journalists who work within these large corporate outlets, especially millennials who haven't been steeped in the history of politics, became convinced that Trump was this kind of almost Hitler-like figure, certainly a fascist and a white nationalist, not somebody with a bad ideology, but someone bent on destroying American democracy and existential threat to freedom and all those other things. And once you start believing that premise, it becomes rational to start embracing tactics that otherwise would be totally unacceptable. It's, I think, justifiable if you believe you're confronting a Hitler-like figure with a fascist movement behind him to start lying and deceiving the public in order to undermine and subvert his power or to view yourself not principally as trying to be fair and analytical about the news, but to start serving as activists to try and stop this huge menace and this grave threat. And I think in doing so, they turn themselves into something radically different than what they had always pretended to be and at least tried to be, which was journalistic outlets that aren't about principally engaging in activism. And when you add it onto that, when you add onto that, the enormous success that they all receive from that behavior, huge explosions and subscriptions and social media followings and popularity and profit. You know, I mean, most MSNBC hosts in 2015 as you guys have reported and many others were on the verge of being fired because nobody was watching their show, Trump saved them all. And so by positioning themselves as this resistance force, they got rewarded in all kinds of ways. And the human brain is kind of designed that if you're receiving 
lots of rewards, Pavlovian awards for rewards for behavior, you're going to continue that behavior and find ways to justify it. And I think even with Trump gone now, that excitement that it provided them, that sense of purpose, those material benefits of believing that they were battling this fascist, you know, kind of retrograde white nationalist movement, all the things that followed from that endure to this day, despite the fact that Trump is no longer in power. And for me, it has been a huge corruption of how journalism is practiced in the United States. You've also, on a similar note, you've also been critical of the way in which MSNBC and CNN have taken members of the intelligence community and made them contributors. And the fact, you know, the, the way in which we rehabilitate people through the media, I mean, everyone now has the vapors about the Trump administration officials seeking work in the private sector, but seem to be perfectly fine with Bush officials like Nicole Wallace getting shows on MSNBC and spoon feeding resistance rhetoric to the viewers. Is that something that you see as, a, as an issue in cable news? I mean, so th- this is probably, you know, the most stunning thing to me. So as you know, you probably know, before I started writing about politics in 2005, I was a lawyer. And I was the kind of lawyer that kind of came from this very civil libertarian uh, tradition of uh, the old school ACLU that was often associated with the political left. And the great evils of that worldview were things like the McCarthy era, where people were being accused of being clandestine agents of the Kremlin, or... CIA manipulation of domestic politics and the dissemination of lies. And one of the major programs of the Cold War that was one of the most horrifying was called Operation Mockingbird, which was discovered during the Church Committee investigation of the 1970s, kind of the, you know, liberal civil civil libertarian uh, church in both senses, the Church Committee, but also it kind of formed like in almost this religious way, how we look at this security state that was created after World War II and this this attempt on the part of the CIA and the Pentagon to manipulate news clandestinely. And so to watch now in the name of stopping Trump, this reverence on the part of American liberals that polls show they have for those very agencies that for decades were considered the kind of, you know, if at best a necessary evil, if not the, the, the grave threat to democracy that they are, not only be, be be rehabilitated, but to the point where they became stars. You know, these news outlets started hiring one after the next of, you know, John Brennan and James Clapper and Michael Hayden, who was George Bush's NSA and CIA chief in the wake of 9-11. And these were the ones who now are being presented as the experts, the oracles of truth to whom liberals should listen and get their news from. And so Operation Mockingbird almost became something that was dragged out of the shadows and was turned into the official model of these liberal cable outlets. So that was one shocking part of it to me and one disturbing part. And then the other was exactly what you just said about George Bush and Dick Cheney, because when I started writing in 2005 and what had prompted me was reading a lot of liberal blogs that had you know, kind of been this counterweight to the mainstream media back in 2002 and three and four, arguing that the media had become too deferential to the Bush-Cheney administration and the war on terror. George Bush was spoken of by liberals, people forget, especially Dick Cheney, the way Donald Trump has spoken about liberals now is this is not like, oh, this kind of noble politician who has an ideology that we don't agree with, but as a monster. You know, I wrote three books on how the Bush Cheney executive power theories were overturning American democracy and imposing authoritarianism 
in this very yeah. formal way. And so to watch these Bushini operatives like Nicole Wallace and Matthew Dowd and so many other ones, the Lincoln Project scumbags, but also, you know, all those security state operatives, again, like Michael Hayden at the time or John Brennan, who was working in the CIA, um, and especially neocons who were the worst of the worst from that perspective, like Bill Crystal and David Frum and, you know, Jen Rubin, all those kind of Max Boot now be turned into icons and leaders of American liberalism was, I, I, I can't find the words for, you know, how, how damaging and how stunning that is. And it wasn't just, it was so clear, a kind of alliance of convenience as it was claimed, like, oh, we're just joining with them to get rid of Trump. And then once he's gone, we're going to go back to, they're now more embedded into the Democratic Party than say members of the actual left are. And it was clear that that ideology had taken over mainstream Democratic Party politics in a way that I found very dangerous and very repellent. And, and I think you see all these authoritarian elements that were once associated with Bush and Cheney back in the day, now defining how American liberals think about politics. Yeah, it was almost like the fetishization of politeness in the Trump years excused all of the actions of these people and, and made it so that they became, you know, pundits that were well-respected on MSNBC and CNN. One thing I've noticed about your criticism is that you, you focus a lot on MSNBC and CNN. Fox News does seem to draw less fire. Do you think that Fox News is a less corrupt, you know, journalistically corrupt news network than MSNBC and CNN? So I'll say two things about that. You know, one is, as I said earlier, the reason I started writing about politics was because I wanted to draw attention to things that I thought were receiving insufficient attention from the rest of the media. If, if all I wanted to do was just to write about everything that was already being covered by the New York Times or CBS News, there have been no reason for me to change careers and create a blog. Everything I, wanted, I would have wanted to say was already being said. So I've always had the kind of approach to journalism that I want to use my platform to bring attention to things that aren't receiving enough attention. So, you know, I don't know how many articles I've written back in the day about the propaganda and the deceit and the lies of Fox News, but it's at least in the dozens, if not the hundreds. Um, but, you know, I think that anti-Trump, pro-American liberalism is the dominant force in American media. And you pretty much can't escape on a daily basis reading about all the things that Fox News does that are deceitful or propagandistic or unreliable or bigoted or whatever. I certainly haven't shied away from that. I interviewed Tucker Carlson when I co-hosted Jeremy Scahill's podcast at The Intercept and spent most of the interview confronting him on, on those criticisms, um, and we debated them. It's just that I don't think my voice is particularly valuable if I'm doing nothing other than saying what everyone else is already saying about Fox. So I feel like MSNBC and CNN have many of the same sins Fox does, and in some cases different and worse ones, and that receives no attention. And so I feel like it's more valuable for me to talk about those, just like I think it's more valuable to talk about, say, the authoritarian aspects of the US government, as opposed to the Russian government or the Chinese government or the Iranian government, which I feel like everybody already knows about. But what they don't hear enough about are the evils of the US government. So I tend to talk more about that, not because I don't think China and Russia and Iran are repressive, but because I just don't feel like my voice 
is adding much if, if, I, if I tend to focus on that. That's part of it. The other thing I will say is, I do think that the Trump era has transformed liberal outlets like CNN and MSNBC in a way that I do think makes them worse than Fox. And you know, when we talk about Fox, it covers a very broad range, right? Like you have Chris Wallace and Brett Baer, that's Fox. And then you have like Sean Hannity and the Fox and Friends. And you can even add Laura Ingram who are more traditional, just like pro Republican voices. But I think, you know, the, the most influential voice on, on Fox which is Tucker Carlson, um, you really can't call him a, a partisan hack. He probably criticizes the Republican party more than every personality on CNN and MSNBC criticizes the Democratic Party combined. He steered uh, clear of criticizing Trump, I will say, during the Trump administration. He'd always, all of his criticisms of Trump were couched in, oh, well, Jared Kushner's making him do this. Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, remember, there, 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 were, there were some criticisms, basically, you know, that I agree were kind of delivered in a softer tone so as to mm. not alienate the audience, but Tucker flew down to Mar-a-Lago at the start of the COVID pandemic to confront Trump directly and tell him that he wasn't taking seriously enough the threat that COVID posed to the United States. He interviewed high-level Trump administration officials and attacked them viciously for not having enough respirators, hmm. for not having enough energy devoted to vaccines and the like. But if, if you want to say that Tucker kind of had to mute his criticisms of, of Trump, for the sake of his audience, that's a criticism I think is, is valuable. But I would also say that Republican senators and even Trump officials are subjected to way more adversarial interviews on Fox than Obama and Biden and their officials ever were on MSNBC and ever would be now on CNN. I think there's a lot more heterodox opinion and a broader range of opinion being offered on Fox and MSNBC and CNN. And I also think that you know, say, let, let's focus on Tucker. He's a lot more willing to bring on dissenting voices. I think the first show I ever saw of Tucker's program was when he covered Russiagate and invited the leading Russiagate advocate in the U.S. Congress, Adam Schiff, onto the set of his show where he debated him for 11 minutes. And that was at the same time that MSNBC and CNN were banning from their airwaves, not just me, but any journalist who questioned their Russiagate piety. So I think CNN and MSNBC is a profit model. And, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of how they see their mission became much more closed off to dissent and heterodox viewpoints than the better shows on Fox did. And I think they compare unfavorably for that reason. Are you, speaking of Tucker, are you sometimes alarmed by some of his more race baiting rhetoric, the white replacements theory stuff, the immigrants making the country dirtier, like, that stuff is is pretty grim. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, like I said, when I confronted Tucker in that interview I did with him, that was what I devoted almost all of the that part of the interview to was, here are examples where it seems to me as though you are deliberately inflaming what you know are dangerous and potentially volatile racial divisions on the part of your audience, focusing on say how black cops kill white people as opposed and then undercovering when white cops kill black people, talking about really vulnerable minorities like the gypsies or other immigrants, the Roma, um, in ways that are incredibly degrading and stereotypical. 
So I do think Tucker sometimes is insufficiently careful in the thinking about the consequences of his words. But I will also say that I, I think that Tucker's overall ideology is frequently misunderstood, which is, I don't think that when, even when Tucker's talking about immigrants, say, or you know the problems that it causes, his motivating or animating view is that immigrants are bad or that these people are culturally inferior to the United States as he's often accused of believing. I don't think he actually believes that. I think his overarching animating view of the world is that there's a corrupt ruling class of elites who impose on the rest of the population that have none of the privileges they enjoy, a whole variety of policies that they get to feel good about advocating because they feel like they're good people. Let immigrants in, accept them into your communities while isolating themselves and their own families from the consequences of those policies. So they'll live in gated communities, they'll live in racially homogenized communities, they send their kids to private schools. There, there is a, a challenge that comes, that communities have when they have to start living with and kind of mixing with people of different religions and cultures, we're tribal beings, that's a challenge. It's a challenge we should want to meet. And, and when we meet when we meet it, it produces a lot of benefits. But I think his critique is not that that challenge or that policy is in and of itself wrong and bad, but that the elite class, the ruling class, is very eager to impose costs on the rest of the country and then insulate themselves from it. I think that's much more his animating principle. Now, not to spend too much time on, on Tucker Carlson, but one of the th big things that was in the news this week was uh, his, his coverage of the FBI on January 6th. And you wrote a piece sort of defending his, his take on it. Um, you wrote that the FBI has done this kind of stuff before. It shouldn't surprise anyone that the FBI had some involvement with something like this, and which is true. Um, but you also wrote that, that no one, including Tucker Carlson, is claiming to know that the FBI was involved in this. But if you go back and look at, at Tucker's segment, that's not necessarily true. Tucker said repeatedly with certainty that the FBI organized the attack on the Capitol. So in this case, he's not just asking questions, and he does this sort of frequently. He's telling his audience something that he has no evidence for, as if it is fact. It, it, do you see that as an issue? Yeah, of course I see that. I see that as an issue anytime anyone does that. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, if you look at my article, I did actually criticize not just Tucker, but the Revolver News article that had kind of initiated the discussion for making a an analytical error that allowed other media outlets to treat this as clearly debunked. Namely, the reason Tucker thought it was so, I think he called it almost a certainty, was because he believed that the reference to unindicted co-conspirators almost certainly mm -hmm. meant that these are people who had been working for the FBI but weren't being indicted for that reason, when in fact, an indicted co-conspirator would almost never mean somebody who was an actual mm -hmm. conspirator because they lacked the intent. So that was a mistake that both Tucker and Revolver News made. But I really felt like it was a very ancillary error because the real argument is there are, there are a lot of very high level people who were accused of being the leaders of the three groups that were behind the attacks or other people who were alleged to have used violence who have not yet been indicted while much lower level people are facing very serious charges. And it does seem to me to stretch credulity that given the security state's years long claim that these are the most dangerous threats to national security, these far right anti-government 
uh, groups like the three percenters, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, that the FBI wouldn't have informants, if not undercover operatives, embedded within them. I'd be shocked if they didn't. And if it's true that they did, the statement, well, the FBI organized the, the plot probably is too far for what mm-hmm. the evidence shows. So I, you know, if that's a, a criticism I, uh, yeah. of, of what Tucker said, I think it's a valid one. But what bothered me way more was that the rest of the media treated this like this was some kind of insane idea that the FBI might actually have foreknowledge of the January 6th riot and did nothing about it for whatever reason or even that they might have directed it given how often that they've done it in the past. I thought the much more dangerous part of that reaction was the intent to protect and defend the FBI and label this as a crazy conspiracy theory, even though there's a mountain of evidence that should really make us wanna investigate and ask those questions. Yeah, I think the the reflexive uh, declaration that, that this kind of stuff is debunked or conspiracy theory has been a problem, especially with you know the Wuhan lab story um, that we had to deal with for the last year. And your piece but, was but, good. But, in- but just on that point, like <laughs> yeah. the, what you know, the reason it got debunked and and labeled as this crazy conspiracy theory was because these other outlets brought on all the FBI and other security state officials who were on their payroll and asked them, tell us the truth. Like Chris Cuomo brought on Andrew McCabe. And he literally said to find out what really did and didn't happen here on the question of the FBI's role, we now turn to the former deputy director of the FBI, Andrew McCabe, who wasn't just a top level FBI official, but one who had to quit the FBI for lying to the FBI about his leaking and almost got prosecuted for it. Now he's on CNN's payroll defending the FBI and telling viewers they shouldn't believe any of these things because it's a crazy conspiracy theory. I thought that was much worse than some of Tucker's uh, rhetorical excesses or assertions of, of, of certainty or almost certainty where the evidence didn't warrant it. Yeah, I think, you know, asking questions about the FBI's involvement is entirely fair game. His conclusion that they were necessarily that they organized the riot and then later on his on a show a couple days later he said well it wouldn't surprise you if they had but in, in yeah. any case i, I want to move on to, to talk about trump a little bit sure. looking looking back now now that the administration is concluded what do you think the, the the biggest takeaway is from the trump presidency itself just on on sort of policy and and what it achieved and and, and what the sort of legacy of it will be i think trump was overwhelmingly a continuation of the tradition of American policy. I don't mean politics because his way of expressing himself was obviously quite different, but on a policy level, both domestic and foreign policy, it was very much a continuation of mainstream US policy that has been observed on a bipartisan basis for decades. Um, you know, he talked a big game, for example, about not confronting Russia, and yet the reality of his administration was they were more provocative toward Russia than Obama was willing to be. Unlike Obama, Trump actually bombed Syria and bombed Assad's forces, which is extremely provocative to Russia, and did something far more provocative to Russia, which was send lethal arms to Ukraine to anti-Russian elements in Ukraine, which Obama steadfastly refused to do despite bipartisan demands. And he also tried very hard to stop what was by far the most important uh, project for the Kremlin, which was the completion of the natural gas pipeline to Germany, whereas Biden reversed all of those. He hasn't bombed Syria. 
Um, he has stopped the sending of lethal arms to Ukraine and lifted the sanctions that were impeding completion of the natural gas pipeline. So the, if you look at, you know, I think the, the, the most important part of the Trump era is that if you look at the actual rhetoric from both Trump and the media about what was happening and then compare it to the reality, they're, they're in completely different universes. And I see Trump much more as a continuation of American, the American political tradition and the departure from it. But I also see him much more as a symptom of American pathology rather than the kind of the author or the cause of them. And at the end of the day, you know, I actually think in an odd way, the Trump administration ended up strengthening American democracy more so than it has been strengthened in decades because it did enliven and recharge all of these institutions that had been completely dormant, at least under Bush and Obama, you know, an adversarial press, an active citizenry, protesting and marching on the street, scrutiny by the courts over whether executive policies comported with the, with the constitution. And I think he ended up being a very weak president, incapable of doing much of what his rhetoric suggested he intended to do. Now, you have been accused of being a Trump supporter. A, a recent quote of yours circulated on a Twitter in which you said a couple of weeks before the 2020 election that the prospects of Democrats winning was, uh, quote, very alarming because they're authoritarian. You dismissed the idea that that comment was any sort of endorsement of Trump. But I'm curious, in, in the weeks before the election, did you consider supporting Trump, voting for Trump? Do you have any preference for him? Really? No, no. I, 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 I genuinely don't think that way because I don't see my role that way. Hmm. You know, I think it'd be incredibly pompous of me, for example, to like endorse a candidate as though there's like a herd behind me ready to vote for who I tell them to vote. And even if I did have that, I wouldn't want that and never have wanted that. I've always wanted a critically minded audience who takes the information I provide them and then form their own view of the world. And I, so I, I never think about my role as helping one party or undermining the other because I also then think it compromises my ability to view them with the kind of critical distance I think is necessary. Like if I feel like I'm rooting for one candidate or the other, I then feel like I become responsible if they win and therefore might wanna pull my punches if they do. So what I do in, in the weeks before an election is I try and disseminate information about whatever candidate I think is not getting enough attention. And I did think that one of the dynamics that was overlooked was that on the one hand, Trump had faced so much resistance from all these institutions that he did become a weak president. Whereas I knew that with Biden, all these people who were very politically engaged in the kind of trite parlance that they had used, were gonna go back to brunch. You see it in the cable ratings. Nobody's watching MSNBC or CNN anymore because they're just not afraid. They're not reading newspapers as much as they were reading. Nobody looks at Biden as someone who needs a lot of pushback and a lot of resistance. And I knew that if Democrats took over both houses, and Biden then had the White House and then had Silicon Valley, the intelligence community and the media behind him, this incredibly powerful union of all these ruling class institutions that on a lot of levels, the threats that would be posed to basic civil liberties and other things was going to be greater, even if Trump was a worse person or a worse politician than Biden compared just without any of those other factors being taken into account. And that was what I was trying to highlight was that there was a coalition, a kind of unity of ruling elite institutions that had become 
fully fledged partners within this coalition backing the Biden administration and the Democratic Party. And whenever you have a ruling class elite that united, that in itself is a danger that people casting votes ought to consider. I assume you won't tell me who you voted for in 2020. I didn't vote. I, I just don't vote. I don't, for exactly that reason. I, like, I feel like if I vote for a candidate, I become too attached to them hmm. to be able to do the job I want to do. My last question. In a lot of ways, I feel like you would uh, agree with certain things that the Biden administration is doing um, in terms of foreign policy and also surveillance. The Justice Department has pledged uh, that it won't spy on journalists uh, like the previous administration is reported to have done. Uh, Biden tightened restrictions on drone strikes that Trump had loosened. Biden froze arms sales to Saudi Arabia and ended support for the coalition. And he set a, a deadline to withdraw from Afghanistan in September. So Biden is currently ending the wars that Trump couldn't. Does that make you optimistic about the Biden presidency? I mean, I don't think, it, I mean, I think we're, it's, everything's very too early to tell on how much of that follow through is gonna actually happen. There's a lot of talk, for example, with the ending of the war in Afghanistan that they intend to pull troops out, but then keep military bases very close to Afghanistan that will continue to allow airstrikes and drone strikes. So the extent to which that will really matter remains to be seen. I think it's important to keep a critical eye. The reality is Trump did try to pull out of Afghanistan and was stopped from doing so by a coalition of pro-war Democrats on the House Armed Services Committee and neocons led by Liz Cheney, who voted to defund that effort. But yeah, I see some positive signs from the Biden administration, yeah. just like I saw from the Obama administration. Um, you know, I was always supportive of Obama's argument that it wasn't worth risking confrontation with Russia over areas of their vital interest, but not ours, because we're two, two of the two largest nuclear armed powers on the planet. So for example, I was glad that Biden agreed to meet with Putin in a summit and didn't want to kind of, you know, adopt this posture of we're going to treat them like this intractable enemy. And, and but the attempt to reinstate the Iran deal and to reestablish relations with Cuba, all things that Obama did that Trump reversed are all things I support the Biden administration and its pledged effort to do. I'm just kind of keeping a skeptical eye on how much follow through there is in that stuff and whether or not it actually happens. All right, Glenn Greenwald, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, it was great talking to you. I really enjoyed the discussion. Thanks for having me again. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and check out coverage of my conversation with Glenn Greenwald on Mediate.com.